Hey, welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kapitek and Sean Karnickian. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Brian. So, Sean, we're going to talk about some cases we do like we do every week. Today, we're going to talk about some cases that you're going to describe in a minute, but our usual format is to focus on recent cases that have come down from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court. Not so many United States Supreme Court cases recently. No, they're not very active. Practice, no, right? not, not, not for us. At not least. for us. So what's the theme today? What type of cases are we talking about? We're talking about uh, consumer-related cases, cases that sort of affect those lawyers that practice in traditional consumer protection law, I guess. Would be like us, like it. us, exactly. the Cabotec Law Firm. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. And do we have a discount code we can give people? No, we're not no. selling anything. Okay, so well, we don't we don't sell anything. No, but we are available to hear your feedback, to talk to you about your cases, answer questions you may have about um, something you're handling or something you want to work on with us. And we appreciate all the feedback we've gotten. Um, so the four cases we're talking about today, the first one has to do with a small little startup in Silicon Valley called Facebook. And What's that? It's a little company you wouldn't understand, uh, but we're going to talk about whether or not their their tracking of users violates various California privacy statute and other law, other common law um, statute or common law claims. And next, we're going to talk about a lemon law case, but specifically in the context of fees and the amount amount of the the proper dam, uh, proper measure of fees that are awarded in a lemon law case. Then we're going to talk about another Lemon Law case, but this time in the context of admissibility of an expert's opinion and what the standard is there. And lastly, we're going to talk about the Fair Credit Reporting Act and the disclosure requirements in a case that kind of clarifies what's required in um, a Fair Credit Reporting Act claim. So they're all pretty interesting cases. I think the longest one, though, is going to be the Facebook case. That's the first case we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And uh, I disagree with you about one thing you said. I wouldn't know what Facebook is. My demographic is more likely to use Facebook than yours. Yeah, that's actually true. That is that's, true. That, that's true. When I signed up for the for Facebook, it was called the Facebook. First of all, I can't was, tell you the, the number of people I know from high school who report on Facebook all the time, like about the last um, great sausage they just ate. At Chili's or something? Right. Yeah. I don't get it. Well, yeah, and and you're right. I mean, it's... It, it, now it spans multiple generations, your generation, my generation, the younger generation. I mean, yeah, sure. The and younger kids are less people. into it. Yeah. But yes, elderly people, Brian. Yes. No, but but all kidding aside, Facebook has hundreds of millions of users. Oh, it's yeah. it's a part of life almost. And this is a very important case. So let's just give it some context, what the allegations are here. And it, this is a this is a lawsuit that goes back 10 years. So this just goes to show how, you know, this isn't necessarily something new that's happening. Facebook's conduct. It also shows you how um, hard Facebook fights on these issues. Absolutely. And how this is their core Absolutely. issue that they live at. So, so just to set the stage, though, it's the Ninth Circuit. Uh, came down from the Northern District of California, where I believe that that little company is is based, right? Yeah, yeah. And and let me try to explain what the allegations were here. The allegations were that when a Facebook user is on their computer, they they log in, they use Facebook, and then even after they log out, if they visit another website, a third party website, not Facebook, but that website has a like button, which almost 
all sites, all major sites do, if you go to like CNN or anything else, if there is a Facebook like button on do that I have website, a like button? You, you don't have a like button. I'll explain it to you later. No, but, but, but all kidding aside, if that site has a Facebook like button, um, th- Facebook is able to track the fact that you went to that website through a backdoor type of cookie that's on your computer even if you have logged out of Facebook. And the users here brought a class action arguing that this is a violation of various state and federal privacy statutes, a common law invasion of privacy claim, breach of contract, and the duty of good faith. Why fraud, does, so, so a fundamental issue here, though, all the joking that we've made about this aside, and we can continue to joke about it, is that that the company does this for a very specific reason, right? Right. So they can build a profile on each of their users, not specifically a very identifying profile in terms of what what we commonly think of as identity. Like this is Brian. He lives at this address. This is his social security number, even though they have your name. Because what but, I've often said in these privacy cases, Sean, is that companies don't do this because they want to collect information about you. They do it because they want to sell you shit. Yeah, yeah. They they, actually want to sell advertising so the advertisers can sell you shit. Right, so they could tell the advertiser, look, you're looking for 30-somethings that you want to, you know, sell this mid-level, you know, luxury car to. Here, we can give you a list of them. We can give, and and we need them to have X amount of income. We can give you a list of their income. And, And even though you don't directly tell Facebook, this is my income or I work in this field, they can tell based on the other sites that you go to go to so, and where you live and who yep. you are and all that. So yep. a lot of social commentary here. But before we get to the social commentary, or maybe we can weave it in. Let's just talk about basically what happened in this case. It was a pleading case. The case had been thrown out. It had been dismissed without leave in the district court. And um, that requires a de novo review in the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit looks at this. And I have to say up front that I thought this was one of the um, one of now a series of cases where I think the appellate courts are finally starting to get this. I think it took a little while for it to sue. Yeah, there's been other privacy type of electronic privacy cases that I've worked on in the past. And I was astounded by the body of law that's out there that, that is so outdated when it comes to this stuff. Like it's like it's like having a computer and trying to like use, I, I don't know, matchsticks to somehow do work on your computer. It's a, like product, it's, it's a product of older appellate judges and justices. Yeah, it, it's who also don't get it. I, and I also think, look, in, in their I, I don't want to say in their defense, but the judges aren't solely to be blamed. It's just a product of how litigation and jurisprudence works. You know, that's true. Things need to be I litigated. It takes time for these issues to, to come to a head. So, you know, that's so part that's. The first thing they confront in this case is the question of standing, something we've repeatedly talked about on our show, which is the body of law that's arisen about standing. Um, and what the, the the first case they look at is Spokio, which is the, Cal- the United States Supreme right. Court case that talks about there being concrete injury, but then fundamentally finding that it's a relatively low threshold for finding that there's, there's some kind of um, – uh, uh, cognizable injury, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that's where, like, kind of the interesting meaty stuff starts. They talk about how um, the district court threw out the case because there couldn't be any economic loss here. And that's why there's no standing. These plaintiffs have no economic loss. And, and, and the Ninth Circuit says, no, there is economic injury here because they've alleged at least anecdotally, but they've alleged, and I believe this, that their browsing history 
has value. It can be valued. They, they cite, for example, that research panels will pay participants for their browsing history. Facebook profits off that data. Well, so yeah, it's absurd. Pro- Facebook is not doing this for fun and right. games. It's absurd when Facebook comes back and a lot of these companies come back and say, there's no economic harm to the plaintiff. Well, it's your whole business model. that That's the economic harm. They made money off my back. I get the fact that if I, you know, if they didn't do this, I wouldn't necessarily have more money in my pocket, but I would have had the opportunity to. I could have sold my data to someone. So, so that, that's where the standing so the court, goes. The court comes down on this and they say, California law um, recognizes disgorgement of unearned profits. So the fact that they've taken your information and they're selling it to other people, those are the profits they're making off of you. Although maybe you don't sustain a direct economic harm. They recognize California law. California recognize, law recognizes an interest in unjustly earned profits. Plaintiffs have adequately pled an entitlement to a disgorgement of the profits. So the first thing they find, and I mean, I, I think you're right, is that they find that California law has that right. It has that right to protect it, and it has the right for you to recover it if the information that's been stolen from you uh, ends up in um, somebody else's hands and they're making money off. Yeah, and, and it kind of piggybacks some of this language off the, um, not the California-specific language, but just about the value of your data, uh, of, of privacy and your browsing data off the Patel case, which we covered very recently as well. That was the other Facebook. Oh, there's case. several Facebook cases. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a ton of Facebook cases. So, um, you know, in fact, a lot of the citations in this case are to other Facebook cases because that's where this body of law is slowly being developed. So they also look at whether or not it's an invasion of privacy. I think they find that there's a, a an invasion, a potential invasion of privacy. They do access or at least there's enough for it to proceed at this point, because what you need is a reasonable expectation of privacy. They say that the plaintiffs have surely alleged that they had a reasonable expectation of privacy, especially when they log out of their account. And number two, that there's an that the intrusion was highly offensive. And they they say you can't throw this out at the pleading phase. Um, that's a question of fact. And, and the plaintiff should be allowed to develop that theory. So, so they pled privacy. They pled violation of California statutes. Uh, they also went and pled um, the, a violation of the wire sta- wiretap act. wiretap act. Yeah, that was upheld, right? It analogizes Facebook to someone that's kind of setting up. A, if if I went into your computer and I set up like an auto forward where every email you got came to me, is that happening? You know, that's I haven't done that yet. Nobody tell them about that, at least. Uh, but but no, I haven't done that to your computer. But but they analogize that that's kind of what Facebook is doing. You log out, but they're still able to see where you're going. Um, so, so they allow that to stand too. Look, I think this is, I think this is important. I think this is important move forward. We've done a lot of privacy cases. I helped write the current California privacy statute. And I think that the fact that, you know, when, um, the wrongdoers fight back so hard about this kind of stuff, it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the use and misuse of private information. Uh, unfortunately, it's one of those sad circumstances that it's pretty hard to live in society today. I mean, I guess you can live without Facebook, but there's lots of things you can't live without. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think it's just about Facebook specifically. It's about your your ability to control privacy. I mean, a, as we know, these types of things and your, your private data, 
it swings elections. It it makes big differences economically. It can make or break a company. It can make or break um, someone's ability to 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 do something because it's such a strong tool. And and it goes all the way to the top. You know, the last election was clearly influenced by uh, specifically knowing, knowing this kind of data. Like, yeah, they want to know everything data driven advertising about you absolutely. They want to drive information to you specifically, and they want to drive in different information to me, right? So they right. may be driving information to you about buying a new home or, or moving on in your life. Hopefully something like finding a new job for you. They may be wanting to push information to me about like buffets. cemeteries or, or yeah, I was going to say buffets. No, you know. buffets are gone. Sean. The, the local, the local sizzler. Yeah. Remember when you could go to a restaurant? Uh, I don't know, but, but all kidding aside, very important case. It's called the in Ray Facebook internet tracking cases. So, so that's something you should look up, keep up with this thing. It's super interesting. And it's a good trend that we're seeing in these privacy cases. Let's go to our next case. That's uh, Reynolds versus Ford Motor Company, also a very small company out of the Midwest. Uh, this is a, this is a lemon law case, Song Beverly. And the issue in this case, I think is also very interesting. It's about um, the Song Beverly Act allows for the recovery of attorney fees. So very quickly, the facts are not in dispute. It went to trial uh, it ended up resulting in a verdict for the for the plaintiff. Um, it was a specific type of truck that Ford sells. Apparently, a, a very expensive truck. Because no, verdict- this one I don't think went to went to trial. This this was a settlement where Ford agreed to buy back the plaintiff's car. Or it, this is a Ford F two fifty for two hundred seventy seven thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah, there were all kinds of problems that had been in the shop 15 times. And ultimately, they gave to settle for two hundred seventy seven thousand dollars plus an agreement that there would be a motion for attorney fees as the prevailing party, as the plaintiff was the prevailing party under the Song Beverly Act, the Lemon Law Act, which allows for that. So to, to set this up properly is that the Song Beverly Act is, is a specific statute in California that um, encourages consumers injured consumers, the right to go out and seek redress against large companies with a, uh, I believe, a one-way mandatory attorney fee provision. Um, The act is, um, uh, fundamentally, it says you get to recover your attorney fees. So So there was no dispute about them getting the right to recover their fees. They made an application for about $300,000 in fees, which I think include a multiplier. Yeah, it was a 200. So it was a lodestar application, meaning it just it's based on number of hours, $200,000 in actual build time, and then uh, a one point uh, a one point five multiplier. So that tax on another $100,000. So it was a total of a little north of $308,000. And Ford opposed the motion and and made a number of arguments. Um, The kind of the marquee argument was that, hey, these are plaintiff attorneys. They probably they haven't produced a contingency fee agreement. They should have because now we don't know if they're double dipping. It's likely that they're double dipping because they got the settlement, the $277,000 settlement. They maybe took a chunk of that. And now they're asking for more money on top. And that's improper. So without any evidence, though, without submitting uh, uh, the FEMA, uh, the uh, retainer agreement. Well, they right? wanted the retainer agreement and the court said no. And what I liked about this opinion was it said, look, you don't get a break just because there's a contingency fee agreement. And one way we've seen this is that people come out and argue in these kinds of cases. 
you should be limited to your contingency fees. The court rejects that. I mean, that's been long since rejected. And then they say, well, we don't, we're not going to pry into the relationship between the attorney and the client here. We, we have to presume, and this is what this opinion specifically says, we presume without any other evidence that the lawyers acted ethically under the circumstances. And we here, Sean and I don't make any opinion about the propriety of whether or not you can recover for the contingency plus attorney fees. The important point is, the defendant doesn't get the benefit of offsetting some contingent fee against the amount of lawyer fees that they may have. Right, to pay. right. We're not commenting here. We're not advising as to whether you can recover a percentage of that settlement and then take the whole attorney fee award that's awarded afterwards. We're not sure about that. But what we're saying is the defendant doesn't get any sort of offset. Um, and the important thing to remember here is that under the uh, Song Beverly Act, you're entitled to all of the fees. You're entitled to not just the reasonable value of the time spent, the the actual amount incurred in fees, the actual time spent by the lawyers. So it's a very the court, the statute court specific out, analysis. Yeah, it's, it's but the court points out in these fee agreements, and it's good to use no for any of them that you use the prevailing market rate in the community. You have to look at that. There can be a multiplier. There can be the skill, the who the lawyers are. But importantly, they say that, that Ford was trying to get on their high horse and say that that there's a, a duty to ensure compliance with the rules of professional conduct. And the court said, we're not going to decide the matter regarding limitations of professional conduct, which may be placed on an attorney's freedom to contract with their clients um, so that they recognize that that, ex that exists. And then they go through some of the factors, right, that, yeah. that the court should look at in these. And this, I think, is really important. And, you know, there are other cases out there, including, I think, one we've talked about before called Ketchum versus Moses. And it talks about the specific factors, such as the delay that a contingency fee or a plaintiff's lawyer in receiving his fees, his or her fees, uh, is often years. The, during the pendency of the lawsuit, they may have to borrow money. They bear the risk. They may not get paid at all. All of those factors. Yeah, Ketchum is a very important case. It says basically that the value that a contingency fee lawyer is bringing to a case is not just the time they put in, but it's the risk they took the risk of not getting paid for that time that they put in. And ultimately, the court says, look, the appellate courts have unanimously held that it is an abuse of the trial court's discretion to tie an attorney fee award to the amount of prevailing um, the prevailing party's damages. So and, and that's specifically in these lemon law cases, but it also goes into other cases as well. So great arguments here. If you're ever making a fee motion, we think you should take a look at this. This is Reynolds versus Ford Motor Company. Um, the next case is also a lemon law case. It's uh, Lamar Waller versus FCA US LLC. What, is we, that, what does that stand for? Fiat and Chrysler of America, no, right? No, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. But yes, Fiat Chrysler, we were kind of baffled. We're like, because it's about a, what, what kind of a car was it? Because it's Dodge Fiat Durango. now owns Chrysler, right? Chrysler, Dodge, and all those brands. And, and I yeah. taught Sean an important lesson about, at least when I was growing up, what Fiat stood for. What does it stand for? Fix it again, Tony. Right. Because I told Brian, you know, Fiat wasn't around when I was younger. It's kind of recent. He said, oh, they were around. I was like, yeah, but they were like really crappy cars. He said they were always crappy cars. It used to be it stood for Fix It Again, Tony. Fix It Again, Tony. And and so apparently this still does. Is, uh, this car is no exception. <laughs> um, no, this car didn't. This case didn't turn out as well for the plaintiff. They lost this case. This was the jury verdict case. This is a jury and verdict case. This is the yep. case that went to trial on a Lemon Law claim, and um, they brought an expert in. And what struck me about this case is that nobody could point to what was wrong with the car. 
And it reminded me of, you know, the joke about going to your mechanic and you tell the mechanic, what is it? This is it that is it? And the mechanic goes, yeah, probably something. I mean, who knows what it is, right? Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll find out. Yeah. So it goes to trial. There's something wrong with this guy's car. It has power failure, It's which means it stops. It just stops running. It's a 2013 Dodge Durango. A couple of years later, it starts having power failure all the time. At some point, there's a recall for one of the parts. But anyway, plaintiff's theory is uh, th there's two things, that there is a fuel pump relay that is defective or at fault for the power failure, and that uh, the totally integrated power module, which is, I guess, maybe like a computer system because it involves software, or that's at fault. And that's that's what plaintiff kind of goes to trial on. And they have an expert that gets up there and says, it could possibly have been the uh, fuel pump relay, possibly. And, and I'm being very, I'm choosing my words carefully. In fact, he testified in deposition. They had a 402 hearing before allowing him to testify at trial. And he testified at the 402 hearing and his deposition that, he referred to it as a possibility that the fuel pump relay was causing this, not a probability. And he was specifically asked, is it more likely than not that a failing or intermittent fuel pump can cause a loss of power in this Chrysler vehicle? And he says, I would say possibility. And the, trial the court, and the trial court's response to that was possibilities are irrelevant because anything is possible, which, right. is, which is an accurate statement. So what, the, what happened here is the expert gets struck under Sargon, which gives the court the gatekeeping process, which I don't even think you need Sargon for this. I mean, I think this predates Sargon, the ability to have a 402 hearing, the ability to put this on. But um, according to the Court of Appeal, there were multiple um, different time periods. There were different time periods. There was times when this could have happened one way or could have happened another. And nobody knew what caused this problem, right? Yeah. Look, the ultimate outcome, uh, I, I sort of I'm upset about because clearly there's something wrong with this car. Well, but the reason, off. Sean, I think that it was it was an issue because it was just something wrong with the car. Song Beverly would would take care of it. But I think there was evidence in the record that there had been some kind of workaround that somebody other than Chrysler had done to the to the vehicle. Possibly, yeah. And that that's yeah. what took it outside of Song Beverly. If it was simply a problem with the car and you can't identify it, that's okay. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And, and, but here the expert was trying to say it could have been this, it could have been that, and couldn't nail down. So, I mean, the good lesson to take away from this is in any case, not just a Song Beverly, not just a Lemon Law case, your expert has to have some specificity about oh, yeah. what they're talking about. I mean, even and 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 your expert has to be able to say that whatever he's pointing the finger at is the probable cause of it and not just a possible cause, because anything is possible. So we've covered the Facebook today. We've covered two cases involving Lemon Law. And now we're going to go to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And, and a, this is a, an area of litigation where People, particularly people who are applying for a job or employees of companies are required to give information to employers that allow them to do like a credit check, right? Yeah. And the minute they do that, they fall into It's the, like a background check, like accessing previous drug test history, credit reports. Should have we done that with you, you know, like eight years ago when like we hired you? To do like a background check on yeah. me? Oh, God, no. <laughs> God, no. Please don't do that. This is why I recommend against background checks, because right. otherwise we wouldn't have hired someone like Sean, who's right. a great guy. Right. And in case he does one, it's been nice having you guys listening in. I've enjoyed my time on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, you could contribute to my uh, my, my uh, GoFundMe and, uh, you know, help <laughs> help fund my lifestyle going forward. But in no, order but, for but, me uh, to do that, I now have to have you fill out a form. And that takes us back to the case. So Right. And, and let's say you had to have me fill out a form. Under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, what would that form require? Well, it would re require a separate 
disclosure statement to you that's not attached or part of any other document, right? right? A standalone document. That's one of the requirements. And that's pretty established law. And according to the case here, the Ninth Circuit, this is out of the Ninth Circuit, Mm -hmm. the Ninth Circuit says Leonard Luna, who's the plaintiff. Yeah, by the way, the case is Luna versus Hansen. We just got that, huh? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We're losing our minds. Luna joins a long line of litigants challenging aspects of the federal consumer credit report regime, which I said, that's there's a number of cases involving this. And then they go on to say his theory, however, is more novel than most. Luna contends that an employer violates the act by providing a disclosure statement simultaneous with other documents. So there's no question that you have to have the document as a separate document, the disclosure document, right? right? And, and there's been a plenty of cases where it's attached to something else or it's buried in some document. And that's clearly what the law is kind of trying to Right. It, you're trying to prevent it from being buried. Yeah. And, and what happened here, though, over his, here, his argument wasn't that it was buried in another document. It was that it was temporal. It was and, given at the same time. Right. With with other documents. Now, at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic with this because you can imagine some employee getting, you know, five documents they got to sign at once. And it does become a little confusing. But 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 we're talking about here a separate document that comply with the law. And according to the plaintiff's argument in this case. Uh, the plaintiff said, no, you you needed to do it at a different point in time. So how would that work, Sean? Um, so I'd come in and you'd say, Sean, we're very concerned about you. We're going to do a background test. Um, and you'd give me a, you would have to give me the document. I would have to sign it, the disclosure. I would say, I would sign that I received it, even right. though that's not a requirement under statute, by the way. That's right. But just, you know, uh, here's the disclosure statement. Here it is. I would sign it. And then, um, you're going to give me some other form next. Uh, no, I, I, according to this, let's theory, say, let's say, say you, say, let's say you planned on giving me some other form, but according to this plaintiff's theory, I would have to leave the room. Right. And go wait outside. And then you'd wave me back in and I'd come back in and you go, OK, and here's the next form I was going to give you. And I mean, maybe in, in a, an hypothetical sense that that may make some sense so that they want you to focus on it. But that isn't what the law says. Yeah. So, I mean, the court goes out of its way to point out the fact that uh, any alternative result here would be kind of absurd. They even attach a copy. Yeah, they attached, like the disclosure. In line, they in like the, it so much. In the they, opinion, yeah. not attached to the opinion. In the opinion, they have like the actual disclosure itself and, and it has the, the company's name at the top and then it says Fair Credit Reporting Act Disclosure Statement and big bold letters. They spell it out. The applicant has to sign there, print their name there and date it. I mean, that qualifies, they say, and, and the court agrees that this this qualifies with the standalone requirement. And then lastly, there's one more argument that the plaintiff makes here, and they kind of throw that out, that uh, the plaintiff signing the authorization has to be separate as well. And the court says there's nothing in the statute there's about the authorization the being standalone at all. Um, but points so, for trying. Yeah. Look, it's a creative argument. and I appreciate people testing yeah, the bounds of these things. This is one where I think the court got it right. So. Yeah. They, every now and then when, you know, plaintiffs lose, they do get it right. And yeah. I hate saying that, but it's true. So yeah. that's all we got today. Hopefully we got it right. Thank you, Sean, for being with me. I appreciate the civil action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We appreciate your feedback. And, uh, you know, we were recently looking at the number of views we have or, or listens we have because no one wants to view us. And um, that's why we do these. Things. You know, it's pretty cool to have, have, have the support and feedback from you guys. And we really do appreciate it. So... Um, Thanks for tuning in and reach out if you want to talk to us.